0: If you will turn with me to John chapter 13 and when you find it you can stand for prayer or for the reading of God's word and then we'll pray. John chapter 13. We're going to continue doing what we've we've been doing, which has been topical exposition. I'm not going to limit myself to a single text of Scripture today, but I do want to read this to prepare our hearts and our minds for what we're going to talk about. John chapter 13, and I'll begin reading at verse 33. This contained in what we often refer to as the upper room discourse. The Lord speaking to his disciples. He says, Little children, yet a little while, and I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another now notice in this passage the Lord alludes to his ascension yet a little while and I'm with you where I'm going you cannot come Referring to the present state of things. Christ is not physically on earth with His people. And in His absence, He gives His disciples this one overarching commandment under which all of the other commandments will be assumed. Love one another. And then He gives the example of that love. The supreme example. Even as I have loved you, how has Christ loved us? He laid down His life for us. Therefore, in the present state of things, in our Lord's physical absence, we have this one supreme overarching command and this supreme example that we are to love one another with the same sacrificial love with which our Lord has loved us. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the word that we have heard already and we ask that You would continue to bless us, Your people. It is true that you have been so good to us. And very often we find ourselves not grateful, not appreciative. Lord, I pray that this hour would not be following in that same pattern, that we wouldn't be found ungrateful for the word that you've given us, that we wouldn't be found hearers of the word only and not doers, Lord, you've commanded us that we be careful how we are to hear. And I pray that we wouldn't neglect that commandment. Father, we know everybody in the room has the ability to receive audible information into their ears, but Lord, we need more than that. We need your spirit to speak to the heart and to the mind. And so we pray that you would do that for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as you know, we've given ourselves to a study of the concept of corporate unity. We've taken notice of the reality of it, and throughout the series, hopefully we're seeing the the great emphasis of this reality in the New Testament... We saw last Lord's Day, the or two Lord's Days ago, the importance of this reality as it falls within the great many graces that God works in the heart of a believer with which we can trace our growth. Um, last Lord's Day, we began to apply a lot of this stuff specifically and uh, looked at how we are to cultivate this unity. This unity, remember, is guaranteed because of the spirit of Christ dwelling in believers, but at the same time, like many of the graces that we've been given, it's something that we have to labor to preserve and to cultivate. The the old man in us is always uh, attempting and laboring to tear down what the new man is building, and we'll talk some about that this evening when we discuss sanctification, but This is something that we have in the Spirit, but we have to labor to cultivate it and preserve it. The idea that I'm trying to convey in in hammering this thing, what what we might say beating this thing thin at the edges for many weeks now, hopefully as we continue to talk about it, it'll become an ingrained reality. It's very easy to uh, consider a notion a scriptural truth or a doctrine or a practice as if it were tied to a balloon floating out in the sky somewhere. And we can say, well, yeah, I believe that balloon's there. I believe it's somewhere. But the plan is hopefully that the notion will become an ingrained reality for us, that this will be the the lens through which we operate. Truths that we often affirm need to become real to us. We are a body. We affirm that. I don't know that anybody else would have, before we started this series, disagreed with that statement. We are the body of Christ. Perhaps you had not gone so far as to understand or confess what the people in that room do Monday through Saturday affects me. And what I do Monday through Saturday affects them. And what we all do together when we gather affects our Worship affects our witness for Jesus when we scatter. When that becomes an ingrained reality for you, you will be compelled to act. While it's a notion, you won't be compelled to act. You'll say, that's great. I feel like that's something we should believe and affirm, and I'm glad somebody's doing something about it. But you won't be compelled to act. But when you are convinced of it, you'll be compelled to act, hopefully beginning with what we saw last week, doing the things that are required to cultivate unity the reality is when you're working for the good of the body and that working comes out of a conviction regarding the relationship that you have with the other members and they have to you and we all have to Christ, then you're going to be a lot more inclined to take seriously the spiritual health of the body. When you've put a lot of effort into something, you begin to take responsibility for it. I remember uh, in my middle school years, And through into some of my high school years, I think, Uh, my parents spent who knows how much money getting my teeth straightened out. You know, you got all these appliances and things that they put in and work on. And it wasn't just the money that it cost, but time and resources taken off of work to drive to the orthodontist, to take me to an appointment, to take me back to school, back to work. I mean, who knows if we could calculate the, the amount of money that was actually put into keeping, making my teeth somewhat straight. And then I've heard them, you know, since then, when it comes to little things like brushing your teeth. Do you know how much money I paid for those teeth? You better keep them clean. When you invest a lot into something, you're going to be a lot more uh, likely to take responsibility for the ongoing upkeep of that thing. It's the same thing. When we're convinced and we're all working for the health of the body, then when we see a member become unhealthy or something begin to be distorted or twisted, it's not taken care of, I'm going to be personally affected. Until I'm convinced of that truth, I'm not going to be personally affected. It's really not going to matter because it's always going to be somebody else's responsibilities. So that, that's what I'm, I'm, I'm trying to work towards and hopefully by the Spirit's help get that conveyed. So last week we began by looking at the fundamental grace that is necessary to cultivate this unity. And I'll read several texts of Scripture, two that we looked at last Lord's Day and I'll, I'll throw in another one for good measure. 1 Corinthians 13, one to 3. All of these great works and graces that God could work in us and that we could use, all of these manifestations of, of power that we could use apart from the fundamental grace of love. I'm nothing. I'm an aggravation. I gain nothing. Colossians 3:14. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony over all of the various graces that the Spirit is working in us, all of the fruits of the Spirit that He's given to us and that we're putting out as we deal with others over top of those, holding all of them together. We're to put on love. And then the last one, 1 Peter 4, 8. I don't think I read last Lord's Day. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Love goes over all, holds everything together. Without love, all of the other gifts, all of the other displays of piety are useless if we do not love one another. I defined this Christian love as this, the active pursuit of the well-being of someone regardless of personal cost and even in spite of personal offense. Now, I want to shrink that down. Because even in that definition, there's some wiggle room left that we might try to wiggle out of what is actually required. So here I'm going to shorten this. This is what Christian love is. It is to seek the greatest good of another through self-sacrifice. I don't want to leave a little gap over here that says, well, we can do this and not really sacrifice ourselves. It is through self-sacrifice. And I would, I would, I would de- defend that or prove that by asking, is this not what Christ did? Is this not how we know God's love for us and Christ's love for us? He loved us through self-sacrifice. He didn't get around it. It wasn't a... Uh, Uh, a sideline issue in His love. It wasn't like, well, I'm going to love you this way, and then, well, I guess I'll tack onto the edge of that self-sacrifice. No, every bit of everything Christ has done for us is seen and must be understood through the lens of Him laying down His self in the place of others as the substitute for sinners. It's through self-sacrifice. Christian love. Seeking the greatest good of another person through self-sacrifice. Now, notice in that definition, and I'm, I'm, notice, I'm, I'm seeing this more and more, in, in all types of Christian doctrines, in all types of applications, in, in, in the working out of Christianity, as we'll see tonight, there's always a negative and a positive. In the commands of God, if it's a positive command, the negative is assumed. If it's a negative prohibition, the positive is assumed. In sanctification, I'm always putting off, but I'm always putting on. There's always a negative and a positive. Well, this Christian love is the exact same. In that definition, there's a positive. Seek the greatest good of another. That's what I'm to be doing. Actively seeking that. And to do that, I've got to know what their greatest good is. But then there's also the negative, through self-sacrifice. You and I have got to die. If we're not dying, we're not loving. We've got to die. There's a positive, seek their good. The negative, I've got to die to myself. Now, last week we looked at the positive things, commands given to cultivate corporate unity, things that we are to be doing. Today we're going to look at the negative, things that we ought to avoid if we are going to cultivate unity or prevent disunity. So that's the, the thrust of today. Imagine this is sort of, so far, fi- a five-week sermon, and now we're just applying these things. So the, the point today is... Don't do this stuff. If we want to have unity, these are the things you don't do. If you want to divide a church, do all of these things. But if you want to avoid division, don't do these things. Now, to begin, I want to go back to 1 Corinthians 13, because last week as we were looking at that comprehensive overview of Christian love, there were several negatives that we touched on, and I want to recap those. And this is one of those things that could very well be put on a list that we just read every day while we're brushing our teeth, that we have to walk through these. But remember, Christian love does not envy. So then I ask, what is in that phrase, love does not envy, what is the prohibition given to me if I'm going to manifest Christian love and cultivate unity in the body? The answer is very simply, don't envy. If you want to unite the body, Don't envy. If you want to divide the body, then just envy. Just begin looking at the things that other people have and and question, why do they have that? And why don't I have that? Don't covet the lives of others. Don't despise your own station in life leading you to wish that you had something somebody else had. Don't envy. Love does not boast. So again, Christian love would be manifested in not... Boasting. If you want to cultivate unity, don't boast. Even if other people don't recognize that you're boasting, still don't boast. A lot of times in Christian circles, boasting is a lot more an attitude of the heart than it is the actual words. We don't get together and say, hey, I just want to brag on myself for a minute. I'd like to pat on my back. I'm going to now begin speaking in such a way that as everybody hears it, I'm going to be exalted. No, we don't do that. But we do some things with an attitude that really behind our words and our actions, we're trying to get other people to to raise us up in their esteem. Don't do that. Don't boast in your children and their attainments, and their achievements. Don't speak in such a way that in the back of your mind, you know that what you're trying to get them to think is, man, they're good parents. They're doing something right. Don't do that. Now, that's different than stating a fact. We can state facts and truths without, in our minds, hoping that other people will think highly of us because of that. Don't boast in acts of piety. Again, there's nothing wrong with saying, I, I, read, I read Luke 15 this week. But if I'm saying that so that somebody else will say, Wow, this guy reads his Bible. This guy's holy. Um, that's, that's boasting. There's an attitude in my heart that is trying to elevate myself. Boasting in acts of piety, reading prayer. You know, in, in, a, in a conversation... Just happened to throw out, yeah, the other morning, you know, I had a hard time getting ready for work. It's like three o'clock and I'm just on my face praying. And, you know, and in my mind, what I'm trying to do is get people to see, well, this man, this is a holy man. I don't even deserve to be in his presence. You know, that attitude, it's a fact, it's a truth, but we can say it in such a way. We have to examine our hearts in these matters. Um, Very often we can boast in our humble state by our demeanor while actually being inwardly proud. This is what the Pharisees did. They disfigured their faces and carried themselves in such a way that people looked at them and said, that's a a humble man. Their motivation was to get people to esteem them. That's boasting. You don't have to say anything, but you carry yourself that way. Boasting in our prayers. Praying with a, a false praise or a false humility. In our minds, thinking, well, I hope everybody realizes that, 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 I'm, that I'm a good prayer. Don't do that. Because here's what happens. Even if it's just in your heart, you're, you, you're hoping that somebody else will, will elevate you. That you'll be raised in their esteem. When they don't respond that way, you're going to be offended. You you are expecting something out of them that they didn't provide. And that, that creates division. Love doesn't boast. So, negatively, don't boast. Don't be arrogant. Love is not arrogant. Therefore, don't be arrogant. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Don't think of others more lowly than you ought. Don't consider, consider other people less holy because of some external thing that you've decided that's the mark of holiness. If they don't have it, then well, they're, they're not as holy as I am because I have it. Don't be arrogant or proud of an understanding of truth that you have that others don't have. That's what we read in First Corinthians 13. You've got all wisdom, all knowledge. You understand all mysteries. If you're not loving, evidenced by the fact that you're arrogant in that knowledge and understanding and, and knowledge of all mysteries... It doesn't matter what you know. Don't be proud. As Paul would say, what do you have that you didn't receive? Don't be arrogant. Love is not rude. Therefore, don't be rude. Don't don't be in the habit of intentionally breaking societal norms simply because Christ is King. That, that could be our, our, our banner. We, we, we believe that, right? Christ is King. But what we can do is go out of our way to be offensive for that sake. For example, here's a, a great example that came to my mind. If I'm at a baseball game, and they, before the game, they say, everybody rise for the national anthem, and men take off your hats. Now I could say, I'm not taking off my hat. Christ is my King, not this nation. Or I could say, This is what people do. I don't need to unnecessarily offend everybody around me, hoping that somebody comes to me and says, how dare you not take off your hat, just so that I can then begin an argument. That would be considered rude. Christ has not commanded me not to remove my hat, therefore I am at liberty to do that. Don't push cultural concepts simply to display your Christianity again a lot of this is in our motivations why we're doing what we're doing are we citizens of another kingdom absolutely ultimately where is our allegiance Christ but there are some things that we can do that are not sinful and we don't have to push that envelope just to start an argument and we'll get to some more of that in a little bit don't be rude Love does not insist in its own way or seek its own things. Therefore, if you are going to love the brethren, don't insist on your own way. Don't seek your own things. Don't expect other people to bow and to bend to all of your wants. Love is not irritable, so don't be irritable. Don't live on the edge of offense. Don't live expecting to be upset by somebody else. I'm going to meet with this person. Every time I leave with them, I'm annoyed. I just know that it's going to happen. We, and just walk into a conversation expecting to walk away aggravated. Don't do that. Especially in the congregation. Because love does not, or love is not irritable. Did I say that when love is not irritable? That's where we are. Don't live as if everybody ought to live and think and act like you. So that when they don't live and act and think like you, you're not offended by it. Don't be irritable. Don't be resentful. Don't keep a a record of wrongs. As we apply this, I was trying to think of some applicable areas where this applies. Don't begin to keep a record of all of the things that you now can't do because you're married or because you have children. Well, if I was still single, I could do this, but now I've got the old ball and chain, so I can't do it. You begin to make that list and eventually you're going to resent that gift that God gave you. The same with our children. Well, if I didn't have all these kids... I could go to the store. If I didn't have all of these kids, I could do this. If I didn't have all of these mouths to feed, I could do this. And I could, do that. I could be doing all of these things. And what you'll begin to do is resent the gifts of God, completely overlooking the very place God has given you to serve, the starting point, as if there's some greater horizon out there that you could have achieved if God wouldn't have stumped you here in your growth with these blessings from His hand. That's how we become resentful. We store up things and we begin... It it doesn't start as resentment. You begin to make this list and after a while it breeds resentment in the heart. Don't rejoice in wrongdoing. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Therefore, if I am to love, don't do that. Don't rejoice in wrongdoing. Don't act like sin does not have disastrous consequences. Again... Don't giggle when your children disobey. Don't giggle when somebody else's children disobey. If somebody else's children disobey and they don't spank them and they look at you, don't giggle about it. That's not good. That's disastrous. I'm watching someone hate their children. There's nothing funny about that. I'm not going to rejoice with them in that. Don't rejoice in wrongdoing, rejoice with the truth. And the same could apply for anybody. Don't giggle when when another brother or sister is, is doing something that is tending towards sin, a sinful habit. It's disastrous. It's not funny. We looked at Matthew chapter 7. Don't be a hypocritical speck inspector. Don't ignore your own glaring moral failures while attempting to lead others. And also, don't excuse yourself from helping other people because you're dealing with your own personal deficiencies. A lot of times, like I said, we will take what we know is a glaring moral deficiency and we'll fold it up very neatly and stick it in our pocket so that when it comes time to help somebody else, we'll say, oh, forgot. I've got this glaring moral deficiency and I can't help there. That's, that's holding on to a sin. That's clinging to something that God hates so that you cannot help others. And we do that. We, we hang on to these things. Well, that's just who I am. That's just my upbringing. That's just whatever. We make all of these excuses as to why we're not putting to death our sin so that we can be of a blessing to somebody else. Don't do that. We looked at Matthew 18 about forgiveness. Don't hold grudges. Be quick to forgive as you've been forgiven. And we looked at Hebrews chapter 10 don't, avoid the, or don't forsake the gathering of yourselves together. Again, the language there in the Hebrews is talking about apostasy. Don't abandon the gathering. But abandoning, abandoning of the gathering begins by missing one meeting of the gathering. And very often, missing one primary meeting of the gathering of the saints is preceded by a long history of missing secondary meetings of the gathering of the saints. Don't fill up your schedule so full that time with the brethren must be neglected. Well, I've got this going on. I I made plans, this or there. And again, I'm not arguing against making plans. I'm not arguing against things that come into our lives providentially. I'm not arguing against working. God has commanded us to work six days. But we have to understand that little habits have a tendency to lead into bigger habits and even bigger habits. And before long, we've forsaken the gathering. And I've, I've described that before. We, we invent a doctrine that excuses us from the things that are required of everybody else. Now I want to do... That, that, that was all recap. Remember that from last week. So now I want to do what I did last week. The, the third point was ask the question, do the Scriptures give us any examples of what this might look like in a congregational setting? How these things play out. All of that stuff, all put together, mashed, mixed together. Some of them intertwined and mingled together and then applied in a congregation. Do we have examples of what this might look like? And the answer is, obviously, of course. The scriptures are sufficient to illustrate themselves. Um, And I do want you to keep in mind, I've limited myself to just the New Testament. If we went to the Old Testament... Uh, If we went to the Proverbs, we could be here for months, showing how all of these things are applied in general principle there. But I'm I'm trying to sort of avoid that charge of blurring the lines between the Old Covenant community and the New Covenant community, even though personally I don't have a problem blurring that line at all. Um, But I want us to be convinced that this is how we ought to act in, in the local church. So I've taken the text. I've made three categories that we're going to talk about. Peripheral issues, pointless issues, and personal issues. Things not to do in dealing with these categories. First, peripheral issues. Everybody knows what your peripheral vision is, right? If I'm focused here, I can still see here. It's not not my focal point, but I can see there. It's, It's a side issue. Peripheral issues are like that. In the Christian faith... We very often distinguish between things that are of primary importance and things which are of peripheral or secondary importance. Now let me define my terms. A primary issue in this sermon, in this setting, is something that is clearly revealed in Scripture without which there is no hope of salvation. That's how I'm going to define a primary issue. So then a peripheral issue is something that's addressed in Scripture somehow, some way, and it's either expressly left in the realm of personal preference or something which, based on the substance of the issue, is not a matter of preference. The Bible talks about it. But at the same time, it does not determine the state of a man's soul. I could, I could throw in that category just off the top of my head. Baptism. We're Baptists, not Roman Catholics. So, do we believe baptism is important? Absolutely. Do we believe the Scriptures address baptism, its mode and its subjects? Absolutely. If somebody is converted, truly converted and born again, and they die in a car wreck before they are baptized, will they spend eternity in hell? I don't believe that. There, there are people who teach that. Um, that's, that's more of a, a more extreme issue, or example of a peripheral issue. Um, on peripheral issues whether they are raised by the society in which we live or by God's Word specifically, a Christian more than likely at some point or another is going to have to make a decision. I'm reading the text. This subject pops up. What do I believe? What am I going to do? Or I'm just functioning in society and I have a decision to make. Huh. Because I'm a Christian, I'm going to have to decide how to act and how to believe in this situation. Um, The very fact that it's a peripheral issue would imply that the Scriptures are either neutral or the teaching of Scripture is, is uh, unclear. Our confession says that not all things in Scripture are alike plain to all. That means not everything is as clear as everything else, and especially it's not alike plain to everybody. Some people see things black and white. How could you get that wrong? I mean, you've got to be an idiot. And other people are thinking, I don't see where you're getting it from. It's it's not that they're not wrestling with the issues, that some things are more or less clear, not not all alike plain. Now, if we add to that the the reality of our remaining corruption, we, we have to believe that each saint can come to the Scriptures and have a difficulty understanding or comprehending the application of a certain truth or a practice. Again, you put all of that together in the congregation, a congregation of truly regenerate people, and there can be a difference of opinion and practice on some issues. We're not saying that these things are irrelevant. That's point number two. Pointless matters. We're not saying they're irrelevant. We're not saying that Scripture has nothing to say because the Bible is sufficient for all things. We're not saying that the people who are convinced of a belief or a practice don't have a good reason for their conviction. We're saying that there's a difference of opinion. There's a line drawn of opinion. And we would not also equate that line with the same line that divides the sheep and the goats on the last day. They're two different lines. So how should we act or deal with peripheral issues? Our desire is to cultivate unity even in the face of differing opinions. So where would you go in Scripture to find some example, some illustration of this? Hopefully, Romans 14 comes into your mind, and you can turn there. Romans chapter 14. We, we often consider this the place to go when it comes to Christian liberty. And it's often abused in the context of Christian liberty. Romans chapter 14, verse 1. Notice the context. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Notice we're talking about opinions, not doctrines, opinions. There is a stronger brother and there is a weaker brother. The weaker brother has a stronger conviction than the stronger brother. In this scenario, the stronger brethren are commanded to welcome, and we'll see, to bear with that weaker brother in these issues of opinion. Now, the examples that are given in verse 2, one person believes he may eat anything. And then verse 5, one person esteems one day as better than another. The examples that are given are food and days under the category of matters of opinion. So we wouldn't say, well, over here's a doctrine of the Christian Sabbath, and then let's go ahead and take a particular doctrine and move it over here to the area of opinion. Paul's not addressing matters of clear revelation. He's talking about matters of opinion, what we would consider peripheral issues. Now, what is the, the, the general aim that he's shooting for in this section? Look at verse 19. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Chase after peace. Like, like if your child was running out into a, a crowded highway. Chase after it as if to grab it. Pursue it. Peace, again, is not just the absence of war. It is harmony, unity with one another and for mutual upbuilding. And the language here is the language of construction. The same root as the word for a house. We're building something here. We're building something together. So chase after the peace and the harmony and the unity that works to building something together. He says our chief aim in these situations is to pursue that harmony, to pursue that peace, the building and the strengthening and the growth of one another. That's our general aim. All right, now notice then his primary admonition. I'm not going to go through the whole chapter using the specific example of food in verse 20. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. In other words, do not exercise your freedoms in a way that causes the weaker brother to stumble. Those who are strong, understanding the breadth of their freedom, are to forego the exercise of that freedom, if the exercise of that freedom is going to be an occasion for the stumbling of a weaker brother a truth that we could glean from this is what's fine for me might not be fine for you. And what's fine for you might not be fine for me. But a liberty that is used to cause or that does cause another brother to stumble is no longer a liberty. It's just been taken out of the area of opinion and placed into the area of black and white. You can't do it. You're not at liberty to cause another brother to stumble. Now some people would eject and say, wait a second, you're saying that the weak, untaught, immature convictions of another brother get to dictate what I may or may not do. Absolutely. Yes. That's what we do in the church. Now what does it mean to stumble in these cases? The word means to to hit an obstruction like we would to trip up. So imagine this person, this weaker brother, he's growing in his faith. He's, He's advancing. He's moving forward. To stumble would be to hit something that Causes that process to slow down. Look at verse 23. Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Is it a matter of opinion? As long as it's not a matter of conscience. As soon as it affects my conscience, it's no longer a matter of opinion. No matter how much somebody else tells me, it's just a matter of opinion. If my conscience is pricked, it's not a matter of opinion for me. The issue is that this weaker brother is attempting to walk by faith and maintain a good conscience before God. Now somebody would say, well, wait a second. Their conscience is uninformed. False. Their conscience is maybe misguided. But it's not uninformed. Imagine a person who, because of a supernatural work of God, now their conscience pricks them about what honors God and what doesn't. What they ought not to do and what they can do. Their conscience pricks them about what they may eat or may not eat. That's that's, That's a miracle of God. Putting that in them. They, as true believers, have... A God-given conscience. And in causing a brother to stumble, here's what you're discipling them. Here's how you're training them. Forget about that conscience. Don't listen to that. You're teaching them to ignore their conscience. Verse 20 says, Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. God is working in that person. And when you teach them to ignore their conscience, you're destroying His work. Verse 15 says... You're no longer walking in love by what you eat. Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Not only are you destroying the work of God, you are effectually and could possibly destroy that person. But verse 18 says, Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Whoever in this way serves Christ, you serve Christ. Christ, when you respect the conscience of a weaker brother. So you say, well, their conscience is uninformed and misguided and they're immature, and I don't think I should have to be affected in my liberty by what their conscience is telling them. Well, then forget about them and serve Christ. The work of Christ, the work of God, and die to yourself. Now we can identify with this, I think. It's always, it's always a good thing for, to, in building up unity. You know there are those team-building exercises that you do when you work at certain places. One of the team-building exercises that nobody wants to get involved in is just calling out the elephants in the room. Let's just talk about the stuff that everybody there are clearly differing opinions about, but nobody really wants to talk about it because it's uncomfortable. But this is how you build unity. Just call them out. So we can identify with this, this idea of Peripheral issues. In this room, I believe, in in this room here, there are people who are, if not fully convinced, at least pretty well convinced that when, when the New Testament Christians gather for worship, the only appropriate songs to sing are the ones in this book. In other words, we have 150 of them. There are other people who if, if you went to that side, they would say, wait a second, I've spent my whole life singing the songs, the, 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 the hymns of the faith. You're going to pry that for me? Songs that have worked specifically in my sanctification and they are perhaps on the other side equally as convinced that the, uh, the hymns of the faith ought to be sung in this room. There are people in this room who are probably um, fairly convinced, I believe convinced, that in the New Testament worship, instruments like that shouldn't be used. And there are others who probably have no opinion. There are people in this room who are convinced, according to the regulative principle of worship, that when we come to the Lord's table, the beverage we are to drink is to be real fermented wine, the fruit of the vine. There are others who would say... We ought not to drink alcohol for any reason. And therefore, when we come to the Lord's table, the only acceptable drink that can kind of cross the boundary of of still being the fruit of the vine but not having any alcohol would be non-fermented grape juice. There are people in this room who are convinced that God, throughout the ages, throughout the centuries of the church, has used His people and the Spirit in His church to preserve His Word down through the ages so that now in the English language we can actually have the Word of God in multiple translations. Others, I believe in this room, who would say, hold to the exact same truth, but say, we have the Word of God preserved in an English translation there are people in this room who are convinced that when we gather for worship, God is the one to be glorified. I love how this stuff starts really broad and then you can work your way down. You're just like... people ought, that, that God ought to be glorified. That when we gather together, the only person receiving any glory in this room is God. And therefore, if I'm a woman, my job is to veil my glory so that God's glory is shown convinced from the Scriptures that a woman ought to cover her head. And there are other, other people who are equally as convinced that that is not true, that that's not commanded in Scripture. There are people in this room who are convinced that it is never appropriate for a woman to subject herself to the leadership and authority of someone besides her husband in a secular work environment. There are people in this room who are convinced that as Americans, we ought to be patriotic and, and stand for the Pledge of Allegiance and take our hat off for the National Anthem and, and believe in everything that the troops do. Whatever it is, I'm for it. I stand with the troops. I don't know what they're doing, really, but whatever they're doing, I'm for it. There are other people in this room who are equally as convinced and convicted that their children, as long as they are in their house, will never pl- pl- pledge allegiance to anything other than Christ. Now, I can keep going. This is it's fun, right? We just talk about the things that we never talk about. Now, are these issues important? Would we say the Bible doesn't have anything to say about any of that stuff? No. Every one of those issues, I could go to a text and show you why I believe what I believe on those issues. Do those who have opinions on these matters do so with scriptural warrant? I hope so. If you don't, throw it in the trash. Do those who have opinions like this desire for other people to come to their opinion? Again, I hope so. There's no point in having a, an opinion or a, a conviction based on exegesis from the text that you also say, well, but I don't care if anybody else believes it or not. That's not a conviction. You don't have it. We, we are, we, that ought to be the case. But are we ready to say that a difference of opinion in these matters that I've listed are the same thing as denying the faith and that somebody who disagrees in these is running headlong into hell regardless of their confession of their life I hope we would say no. Now, might somebody's response to the scriptural evidence on those issues give me a little bit of a hint as to where they might be? I take out the Bible and I say, what about this? And they say, I don't care what that says. I've always done it this way. Now now we've got a problem. But if I've got somebody who says, we're going to open the text and we're going to walk through the text and you see something in black and white and I see the opposite or something different... Also in black and white, I've got somebody who's wrestling with the text who believes the word of God is their guide in all matters. They're doing their homework and they're walking in faith. The text says this, I can't, this is, it's, it's by faith. On the other hand, the person who would say, well, I, I'm not really sure if that's what it means. I'm just not going to do anything about it. That's not walking by faith either. So what do we do? Romans 15, 1 and 2. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Remember that our aim is peace and mutual edification. We are to bear with the weak, do nothing to harm their conscience, do not live as to please yourself, work to build up your neighbor. Now, when I was thinking through this, I began to think of someone who's being diagnosed with cancer. A woman. Let's picture a woman. A man doesn't work as well. She's been diagnosed with cancer. She begins to undergo the treatment, and her hair falls out. The glory that God has given her. How, what that feels like for a woman, I, I don't know. Because I, I could shave my head, and it doesn't bother me. But we've, we've seen these scenarios where a friend wants to show their solidarity with their friend and so they will go so far as to shave their own head a woman the Bible talks about the concept of a woman being shorn as as you don't go out in public like this it's it's not the way God created a woman to be he has given her this glory and this friend says I'm gonna stand in solidarity with my friend to comfort her and to help her. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go to the wig store and have them make a custom wig that looks just like my hair to give to her to wear so that we can stand in solidarity. And she can look... Nobody does that. Nobody does that. She shaves her own head to enter into the affliction of her friend. Godless people do this. This is similar to the Christian duty in peripheral matters. Our job is to set aside ourselves in order to identify more closely with the weak, in order that by God's grace, the weak may be strengthened. Through, this is the means that the Spirit uses, through our dying to self. If you're not dying, it's not going to work. And again, I would prove this by asking is this not what Christ has done? Could He not have simply created a host of people in glory, in His presence, who would have worshipped Him for all of eternity simply because of His beauty and the fact that He created them? Yes, but what did He do? He displayed love and mercy and condescension by entering into our suffering. He entered into our place. He took our place. The affliction was not His to have. It was not His to earn. He he did not deserve to walk in our place, but He did so willingly. Why? So that for all of eternity, we can be in the presence of one who didn't just create us, but loved us. And we know that He loved us because He died to Himself and laid down His life for us. This is how we ought to live. What are we but the body of Christ? If we are not going to follow the example of our Christ, then get rid of the title because we're not the body. The body follows the head. Where the head is, there the body is present. And where the body is, there the head is present. Giving life to that body. This is how we handle peripheral issues. The goal is that we will grow into a united understanding. We go to the Scriptures and we help one another. And just as an aside, I would say... Don't claim to we, be the weaker brother if you don't have an exegetical reason for being the weaker brother. A lot of people will do that. They'll go to Romans 14 and say, well, you just, you just need to be, uh, bow to mine. Mean, I'm weaker. And, and They don't have a reason. They don't have a conviction. The weaker brother in Romans 14 has the conviction. He's the one who says, my conscience won't let me do this. He's not the stronger one. He's the weaker one. That's how we deal with peripheral issues. Let's quickly walk through these last two. Pointless issues. Pointless issues. There are peripheral matters that the Scripture addresses, and we might wrestle with the text and come down on various sides. Then there are matters that are sometimes so loosely connected to the text that you could just like just touch it, and you're like, well, that wasn't even hanging on there. That's a pointless issue. It's not even worth mentioning. It's not worth discussing. But these issues have a tendency to divide the church. 2 Timothy 2.23 Have nothing to do with foolish controversies, foolish ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. We're after a unity, not quarreling. So then don't do the thing that breeds quarrels. We, we want to exalt ourselves. And very often because we would rather exalt ourselves than God... Rather than submit ourselves to God's Word, we will give a lot of time and study and attention and research and mental activity trying to uncover something that God never meant to be uncovered. And then we argue about it. We bring it to the table and it becomes a point of of controversy. Titus 3.9 says, Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law for they are unprofitable and worthless. Now these are given to the shepherds, Timothy and Titus. That doesn't mean the sheep are absolved. That means the shepherd sets the example and the sheep follow that example. Don't get involved in controversies that are ignorant, foolish, unnecessary, pointless matters. 1 Timothy 6, 3 to 5. If anyone teaches... And here's where we get the context of what this often looks like. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy, and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. Notice none of of the word unity wasn't in there, because it doesn't breed unity. Constant friction among people who are depraved in mind, and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now these are false teachers, more than likely, who are coming into the church who want to start a conversation about something that's not really even... It's a pointless issue, but they want to sound spiritual. Start a controversy. Start a debate between people and make people pick sides. In a controversy, a debate, you've got to pick a side. You got to pick a side on this issue. What's your side, man? Where are you going to stand? You going to stand with your pastor or are you going to stand with me? I've studied this issue and it divides the church. It divides leaders. And Paul told Timothy, don't even get involved. Don't involve yourself. Don't entertain it. Why? Because it does no good. 2 Timothy 2:14. 2, it does no good but only ruins the hearers. Outsiders watching. It ruins them. No advance is made. It does the opposite of edification. You've got a cracker box of people watching this thing. Those are the people who are ruined. Now, we live in the day of Facebook. So we can bring this into our context. Don't get into arguments with people who clearly do not agree with you on Facebook. If you don't have the basic fundamental presupposition that the Scriptures are the Word of God, starting from there, the, the essentials of the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's no, you don't have any ground to stand on to have a debate with these people. Don't say things that are calculated in your mind to offend or to hurt, especially in specific cases. I know a person who this will really get them right here. Now, general concepts, general topics, especially false teachings, are different. But we, very often, I think, we see one person say something, and we're like, oh yeah, okay, okay, oh yeah. Copy, paste, for that one person. And we we will write it very vaguely, you know. Like, I'm just throwing this out there. I don't really have anybody in mind, but you know good and well that you are offended and you're taking that offense out on somebody else. Don't do that. Don't get involved in the foolish debates of other people. If you're watching two other idiots go at it, don't jump in. Just let them. Just, it's like a dogfight. Just stay away. Let them, let them go. They can handle themselves. We also have Facebook groups. Facebook groups clearly delineate in the information. Here's what we believe. Here's what we do. If you're going to be in this group, don't do this. My suggestion, again, this is um, not from the Lord, it is me, but I I believe I too have the Spirit of God and of Christ. My suggestion would be, if the description of that group doesn't fit you and what you believe, just stay away from it. Just stay away from it. Because you're either unknowingly, humbly, quietly, being led into a situation where you're going to be offended. And it's going to be bad. Or... You're already preparing yourself for an argument, a debate. You're going into it knowing what's going to happen. And that probably proves that you are the one with the unhealthy craving for controversy. People who want controversy, who like controversy, that's unnatural. That's odd. Especially when it comes to doctrinal matters. And I used to say in in our membership meetings, almost tongue-in-cheekly at Covenant Bible Church, we have the reputation, or we pride ourselves in, in having a bunch of people who don't say stupid stuff on Facebook. Because that was, you know, I could look at other people and I'm like, oh, their pastor is probably so embarrassed. Oh, the people in there, they're just saying this stuff. Okay. And it was I was like, I, we don't have people who are doing that. But now I'm the one who is often fielding the phone calls and the text messages from people in other churches watching our people act like children on Facebook. See that—that's the what people don't consider is that their phone numbers not on the church website, and so they come to me when I ought to be giving myself to prayer and the ministry of the word, and say, "Well, do you know that this person's doing this and this person's doing that?" That ought not to be. Usually, it comes to pointless, irrelevant arguments that are getting nowhere. The Bible says, avoid them. And now, I don't think anybody would accuse me of saying, hey, wherever the, wherever the fight is, just stay away from that. Don't say anything. Watch men go to hell and just keep your mouth quiet. I, I wouldn't say that, and I don't do that. I'm saying, evaluate your heart. Assess your motives. Use tact. Use prudence. Recognize and understand that some people take Facebook far more seriously than we do, or than you might. For some people, that is Life. And that's just how it is. You can't get around it. So, again, if you can't do all of that, then just break with it. Just stay off of it. It's it's not worth that. God, in the scriptures, has not commanded us get on Facebook, start the argument, get in the group, argue with people. He's not commanded that. So you're at liberty to stop at any, any point. You're not bound to. You're not bound to do that. Why? Again, because brothers and sisters are watching you. It ruins those who hear. Outsiders are watching you. Outsiders are judging your brothers and sisters by your actions. Outsiders are judging your church by your actions. Outsiders are making judgments about Christ because of your actions. Why? Because very often outsiders are more convinced of corporate solidarity than Christians are. That person said this, well that must be what their church believes. And we don't even think that way. When it comes to pointless Issues, Avoid it. Stay away from it. I don't believe we're going to stand before God someday and He's going to say, you know what? There were a bunch of morons blabbering nonsense on Facebook and you didn't say anything. Now when that stuff comes into the church, the Scriptures are clear. Deal with it. But pointless matters, don't get involved. Lastly, personal issues. This is where it comes... The closest to home is by far the, the thing that's going to cultivate or destroy unity is how we deal with one another. I've got three main prohibitions and five texts. First, don't make unnecessary distinctions between one another. James says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Don't show partiality. Now in James' day, they were favoring the rich. Over the poor. Rich people take the good seat. Poor people sit in the floor. James says, Do not make distinctions among people that God has not made. Any distinctions. Now for us it might not be the rich versus the poor. But very often we have our own subjective distinctions in our mind that can cause rifts in the body that can cause us to neglect vital members of the body. And we've all been in churches or heard people from churches. They'll say, well, I like that church. But uh, the one thing I don't like is there are just so many cliques that ought not to be in a church. That ought not to be so. In the world, cliques are formed over superficial things. Social class, the rich versus the poor. Hobbies. Well, I hang out with these guys. Why? Well, because we like basketball. I hang out with these guys because we like computers. I hang out with these guys because we like hunting and the outdoors. I hang out with these folks because, well, we were all raised in the country. But I hang out with these folks because we were all raised in the city. See, these are all superficial matters that the world absolutely, just they gather around that water cooler all day long because that's all they've got is flesh deep things to surround themselves Around, But in the church, that stuff doesn't define us. The, the only reason, I could say really two reasons, but the primary reason the people in this room are in this room is because God the Almighty done something in our hearts. Christ died for our sins and gave us His Spirit through faith and we all came here to worship Him. That's all we got in common other than would we kind of live in a general vicinity. But even then, there are a lot of churches who are a lot closer to a lot of us We're united around the truth and the Spirit within us, not the things that we do between Monday and Saturday. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Spirit, one God. So don't take cues from the world. That's how they relate, not us. As our daughters get older, our boys will do this too, but as our daughters get older, don't let them get into cliques about who wears what and who goes where and who's friends with who. Don't do it. Don't let them treat these girls better than they treat these girls. Don't allow it. Secondly, deals with the tongue. Back to James, James 4.11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. James 5.9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers. Now you might say, I'm in the clear here. I would never do that. Well, James also said that if you have the ability to control your tongue, you're perfect. So, either you're perfect or you might probably be tempted to speak evil against the brethren, to grumble against the brethren. And James also says the tongue is a small fire, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. So, whoever can control it is perfect. Anybody want to claim that? None of us. So then we all have this temptation to be guided by our tongues to grumble and to speak evil. Does anybody want to pretend that they've never ever been tempted to say something somewhat negative, to grumble, to complain about somebody else in this room? He said, it's never even crossed my mind. Not once. Don't raise your hands. Do you want to destroy acres And acres of rich, lively vegetation that has taken years to cultivate in this congregation. Then keep running that mouth. Keep talking. You say, well, I don't do it around other people. Keep making little comments about other people in the church when your children are around. around, Where they can hear it. Let your children hear what you really think about this person and they'll come right up behind you and they'll burn the whole thing down to the ground. We might labor our whole lives to build something and two children from two families destroy it all. Set it ablaze. Because they heard mom and daddy talk about other mom and daddy in the church. Don't do it. Don't say it. If it comes into your mind, fall on your knees and repent and beg God to rip that from your heart and to put love in your heart for that person. And then lastly... Hebrews 13, 16, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. It might be easy for some people to avoid all of these negative things. Very often I think this is the kind of person whose head is so far in the clouds they're oblivious that anybody in the world exists. But it might be easy to say, well, I don't do any of those negative things. Well, how about don't avoid to do the positive things. That's something we're commanded or prohibited from doing. Do not neglect to do good. If there is good to be done, don't put it off on somebody else. You do it. Don't say, well, so and so will get that. You do it. If there's good to be done, do it. A few questions. What if everybody in the church did only exactly what you do and no more for the good of the church where would the church be I'm talking in private I'm talking in prayer I'm talking when we are together the little things that we could do for one another if everybody only did what you do how healthy of a church would we have if everybody pushed off phone calls words of encouragement like you do then how how much of that stuff would get done If everybody assumed that somebody else would have that hard conversation in the way that you assume that everybody else is going to have that hard conversation, how many hard conversations are going to be had? You know, those hard conversations that we have to have between brothers from time to time. We we don't want to deal with issues, so we just put it off. Somebody else will do it. If everyone came to church only when you came to church, how often would we be together? Men, how often would we get together if everybody was present only when you were present. You see, there's a lot of good to be done. And we've got a long time to do it. So don't put it off. Don't neglect it. Don't pass it off on somebody else. Don't neglect the good. You're always looking for good to do. If you see something good to do, do it. Don't neglect to do good. And it goes on to say, and share what you have. Now what I've laid out what the scriptures lay out for us, what we're striving for is a group of people who treat one another as they would want to be treated, physically and spiritually. But actually, a group of people who go beyond that. We treat people the way we have been treated by Christ. So we have to love one another, which means we seek the good of others and we sacrifice ourselves for the good of others. Again, it only comes through sacrifice. We've got to die. You die to yourself. If, 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 if we all in this congregation died to ourselves and put these things into practice, this congregation, by the Spirit of God, would be an unstoppable force for the kingdom of Christ. Locally, globally, everywhere, families, everywhere, workplace, everywhere. Unstoppable. If we would just die, well, we've got to die. If you're not willing to die, it's not going to work. If one of us says, well, if everybody else will die, I'll probably be okay. It won't work that way. Everyone, if we die to ourselves and love one another in this body in that way, just think about it. The other people are going to their jobs. If I pray for their witness in their workplace, as deeply as I pray for the conversation that I know I'm going to have in my workplace... Imagine the power of God that can be poured out in that situation. Because I'm not just thinking about myself. That's just an example. Dying to myself means not being so consumed with myself that I forget until Sunday comes around, oh, oh, there are other Christians in the world. We can't do that. It's seeking the good of others through self-sacrifice. So let's pray that God will will work these things in us.